and welcome to the Simon Be Praised. I'm Jack. I'm Joe. And I am Simon. <laughs> yeah, for a moment I thought, well, we, it doesn't sound like we need to introduce anybody now, because we did it all in one go. <laughs> all hail the Simon. Hang all on. the Simon. The Simon Be Praised. Be Praised. There we go. <laughs> and the all Simon right. waits for no man. All right, cut to credits. We're done here. Thank you, everybody. Thanks, everyone. It was fun. Goodbye. That's right. That's right. Be best stroke all year. Yeah, we've, I... we've just beat. <laughs> um, we are uh, delighted to be back yet again uh, doing a story that we uh, did not promise to do last week. No, and uh, Yeah, as usual. Uh, not, not, not that much has changed in the, in the massive hiatus, but we are here with a good, very, very good friend, Mr. Joe Ford. That's right. And his name is Simon <laughs> Hart. And sorry, I looked shocked, didn't I? Good friend. Yeah. Yeah, I know. He was in my bedroom naked a minute ago. Oh, sorry. I was just... <laughs> <laughs> and cut. <Hello. laughs> oh, no, I'll keep that bit in. Um, yeah, so Sire's si done many, many, many uh, Hammers for Blunt Pen Knife uh, appearances. Also is a co-host on Trap One. Yeah, kind of. Now, yeah. Mm -hmm. And has his own Blake Seven podcast. Jack recently yeah. saw a Blake 7 episode for the first time. Oh my god. Only one. Wow. Only one, yeah. It was my first ever uh, Blake 7 episode. It was... Oh, how can I... I always... I forgot the first word. Uh, something of death. Rumors. Chris Boucher. Rumors, Rumors of death. death. Okay. Rumors that, of death. That's an interesting one to start with. Yeah. Nice it was, uh, yeah, it was, it was good fun. Um, uh, I think it was... Um, it, wait, is Peter on the Blake 7? He is, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I was hanging out with him. I was staying at his place, and he was just like, uh, "Before you go, you must see at least one episode of Blake Seven. And that was his. That was his choice. Mm -hmm. ah, interesting. What would you choose? Oh, I'd, I'd probably choose um, Project Avalon. I think because oh, that's the most Blake Seven-y yes. Blake Seven episode. It's there very is. Star Wars. It There's is. lots of shooting in corridors. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Cool. I feel like our podcast has just been hijacked by another one. <laughs> <No>. <laughs> This is what happens when you mm -hmm. when you bring in people from other podcasts, you know. I know. What are we doing here? What are we talking about? Um, what are we talking about? Uh, we're, wow, we're really on form today. No preamble here. No. Um, uh, I'm not going to answer that question. Sai, how are you doing? <laughs> I'm very well, thank you, Jack. It's lovely to speak to you at last. I know. I've heard your voice many times. Ah, yeah, of course, naturally. Um, I... What do you mean, uh, naturally? Do you assume people are listening to this thing? Uh, well, not not usually, but, um, <laughs> uh, uh, over time, just at your insistence, uh, I have come to believe, just by the fact that we have people actually a guest appearing on this podcast, I assume they like to listen to themselves, so there are at least some people, some people who have heard my voice, otherwise I go quiet. <laughs> it's rare, it's been known <laughs> to happen. Yeah, those, those podcasts which are just long, hour-long stretches, which are just us staring at each other with no sound. Well, I'll tell you what, I'll tell you what I'm going to do then, before we head mm -hmm. into the story. Sai, I'm going to ask you to recommend three episodes, one of Track One, one of House of a Blunt Pen Knife, and one of Maximum Power, all of which you've appeared Ooh, yes. on, that you would suggest people go and listen to. Because, Ooh. honestly, Jack, he's whoring himself out <laughs> everywhere. <laughs> but... Um, of the trap ones, the one I'd recommend and one that I really enjoyed doing unexpectedly was the last episode of The Flux, The Vanquishers, oh, which God. was one of the funniest and most fun podcasts I've ever done. Because we asked everyone, 
sort of contributors to to trap one to our tell us what they thought was going to happen in the last episode <laughs> before it went out based on what we'd seen before and basically everyone got it wrong apart from fraser's nine-year-old son who was the closest at guessing the yeah. actual plot wow well, maybe chibnall's doing something right he's appealing <laughs> to the kids you know that's yeah, right that's like right wavelengths so yeah, that, no, that, yeah that was just really great and it was just so delightful to tell everyone no wrong i think it was so funny yeah. some of these notions right like some people suggested he was going to tie up plots and things like that like it was radical i'm yeah, telling you exactly <laughs> i know who would expect that in doctor who of all places well, especially chris chibnall doctor who yeah come on get out of here <laughs> i i'm so curious i wonder what the most wrong answer was you remember? i can't remember i haven't listened to it back since the week it went out so it's been a while i think someone said that theory about bell and vinder being the doctor's parents oh yeah that like was that. a big thing wasn't it at the time <laughs> yeah so coming in what about maximum power? maximum power our series one retrospective i think was just a, a laugh from beginning hilarious. to end yeah because just for a change um the australian contingent got up early and had to record at nine o'clock on a sun on a saturday morning which wow. we, the english people usually had to do so we were allowed to stay up late and drink alcohol and laugh so it was a completely different experience to normal and yeah. it was a, a a three hour long recording to get an hour and a half episode in the can that, that's half the fte lot isn't it yeah. as well so they're all drunk anyway all the time so it don't matter what time of the day is that's true the Australian contingent. That sounds like an offshoot of like the mafia or something. <laughs> <laughs> That's how I think of you all. <laughs> yeah. Well, Jack's We're English. Like... Oh, well, there we go. Yeah. Oh, yeah. well, you know. <laughs> <laughs> Everyone's. I... <laughs> and now the biggie. The biggie. Right. Oh, my God. Go how on. do I choose a hamster? Go on. Because, well, I'm still incredibly fond of the Leisure Hive, which was my first. Oh, yeah. because that was very special and a story that's very special to me but the one that i come back to more often than not these days is the invasion of time with you and fraser joe because yeah. that was just yeah the first time we'd really clicked clicked and by episode four we'd really clicked and we knew what we were doing and all the roles were defined and it just mm. makes me feel happy listening back yeah. to that one all the time oh and, that, and now I'm going to throw the same question at you, Jack. So of your two appearances on Flight for Entirety, what was your favourite? <laughs> Which James oh. Gordon-themed episode did you like the best? I, uh, unsurprisingly, I guess, I think it was probably The Lodger, just because of the sheer amount of technical difficulties we had in that one, which were just very funny. We had the best out, didn't we, ever? Oh yeah, yeah. Where no we one can hear anyone. We're all going, hello, hello. Yeah. And at one point, I think you started. I started doing the Nymon intro, and you started doing the hamster intro. Because yes. <laughs> it was like, what are we going to talk about? He went, we're shameless. They're definitely going to cut this, and then <laughs> they bloody put it in. Yeah. yeah. Then they put it in. So yeah. Oh yeah. Uh, uh, no, no offense to closing time, I guess. But the lodger, pretty fun. Um, you in closing time, you know, you had your most Nymon moment where you had a theory and an opinion about the Cybermen, and you banged on about it for at least 10 minutes. Yeah, that's right. And, and it all and went in. It did, it did, it all went in. <laughs> but, it was, but it was so... 
Yeah, but it was sort of funny because I, I like, I, I had this whole point that I thought I articulated very well, and Nathan was just like, eh, "I don't think I agree with that." <laughs> <laughs> That's very Nathan. <laughs> and it's just like, oh yeah, I think Cybermen are just doing monster stuff in the story. It's like, well, you're not wrong. Um, Is there one I, the, uh, what my, oh, my favorite Unsolved Star well, Trek project episode was? Me. Joe, yes, would you not tell me what's your favourite episodes of the, the three podcasts you... Well, well the, really, it should be the Star Trek one. That's the only one we haven't mentioned. Okay, well, tell us your favourite episode of the Star Trek. I'm oh, Star Trek project. That's easy. It was the episode called Sub Rosa, featuring <laughs> Beverly Crusher masturbating to a ghost while Picard walks in on her cottage. I mean, the amount of fun we had with that, I can't even tell you. I can't tell if you're embellishing the space island. Yeah. I can't tell if you're embellishing that. No, no, that actually happens. Oh, okay, right. So I... space Scotland, isn't it? That they space go to Scotland. Yeah, and it, you can tell it's written by Californians because they're all going, "Oh God, we're not going to be able to do the cable tossing tomorrow because it might rain." It's, it's always like, fucking raining in Scotland. It's really foggy today. Yeah, <laughs> it's is really this... terrible. Is this like a prequel to that joke in the Beast Below when Amy, uh, when they're on uh, the ship and they're like, ah, oh, Scotland has their own spaceship now. It's Space no, Scotland. It's, it's a colony, but oh, they forgot to go out doing any outside filming, so they've only got a graveyard set and a church, and that's it. And that's the whole of Scotland on this planet. Really <laughs> One graveyard. For years, that was the only episode of Star Trek The Next Generation I'd never seen, and I absolutely refused to watch it. Yeah, and then uh, when the Blu-rays came out, I said, well, no, I'm going to have to watch it now. And it lived right down to all my expectations. <laughs> all time, all time favorite Nathan Run, where he's going, Look at this fucking set, this graveyard set, because it looks so fake. And he goes, Do you know where there are actual churches that you don't have to make out of fucking plywood outside? Just take a camera outside. <laughs> it's so funny. Honestly, <laughs> God. Well, it made 60s Doctor Who look good. It did, and that was yeah. Ouch. That was late nineties mm -hmm. as well. Oof. Mm -hmm. Well, um, now we've spent ten minutes talking about all the other podcasts that we've been on. That's right. How about we do this one? <laughs> yeah, sure. Um, so, uh, as opposed to this being a retrospective for like five podcasts, um, we are actually here to talk about. Oh yeah, I didn't even announce the title. I literally just oh, said, no. oh. I'll tell you later. <laughs> Shall we all do a quote and see if someone can guess? Uh oh, um, do, do, do I know a quote? Um oh. uh, yes, let, let's do let's do it. Go, you go first. Oh fuck you. Um, <laughs> uh, um uh, uh, no 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 wait, hang on, shut up. Um uh, uh the air is like wine. Oh, oh very good. Okay, and I'll say um Oh, that's too obvious. Oh, who's going to pay good credits to watch a, a blob in a snowstorm? Oh, very good. Thank you. Mm. Oh, topping day, what? Hey! hey. <laughs> topping day. 99 Sai, si, what are we watching? I feel like you get the honour. We are watching the gem of the Pertwee years. My Possibly my favourite Pertwee story, Ooh. if it's not the Green Death today. <laughs> it is Carnival of Monsters. Hey. I hate to say, we've both got it wrong. We ain't watching it at all. We've no, already we're watched not. it. Yeah, we already watched it. I don't what know why. All right. Yeah. <laughs>
I I, th I think when I was messaging you earlier today, I think I accidentally misspelled it as Carnival Carnival of Mobsters, which I thought would also <laughs> be quite fun. Different story. Sounds amazing. It does, it? doesn't it? Yeah, yeah. Out of space a mafia BBC game. Book that did that with Pertwee yeah, sure. in the fifties. I think that's the alternative title to Gamble with Time. You know, mm -hmm. when it was set in Monte Carlo. Yeah. Mm. I but yeah, I Carnival of Monsters. I've I've watched it quite a few times now because I I, I I saw it years ago on online on like Daily Motion in like it was so it was like four pixels and just kind of going, mm, this looks okay. Um <laughs> and then and then subsequently when I actually properly rewatched it on the Blu-ray, I was kind of like, oh, this is actually what actually probably one of the best episodes ever. Just all the way through. Um and when I was re-watching it this time. It really struck, what really struck me about the script in particular is that aside from the actual production of it, you wouldn't really need to change the script all that much. It's pretty I, sharp. I agree with that. Yeah. I, I think you could pretty much do this as a new series two-parter. We've just mm -hmm. a little bit, maybe some of the racism taken out of it a little bit. Mm, yeah, yeah. No, it does take on a completely different angle post-Brexit, doesn't it? We were saying this last oh, night. Oh, yeah. That, yeah, yeah. Um, just the whole immigration thing and coming in and bringing alien germs and and all of that just feels very much like something you'll find in the Daily Mail every day. Doesn't he at say at one point? Stay away from it. It could be riddled with diseases. <laughs> yes. like, yeah, riddled with germs. Yeah, I think I've heard Boris Johnson saying that a few times. You know, <laughs> it's nothing political. No, well, that's a good line though, isn't it? Mm -hmm. That's a good line because I think there's a lot of politics in this that it's kind of gently taking the mickey out that line about um give them a hygiene chamber and they'll store fossil fuels in it that is a direct quote from something isn't yeah it? yeah give them a give them a bathroom and they'll store coal in it or something in the 80s like was it maggie no no it was way back i think but oh okay it yeah but it directly sort of quotes that changes it to your yeah. sci-fi thing but it's yeah it's robert holmes let loose off the leash mm. and he's just coming in and doing a story he doesn't have to do anything that is particularly joined up with anything else he's not got unit he's out in mm. space he's let off the leash for the first time i think and is just having fun i thought they just mm. said to him just write write yeah. what you want whatever write. you like yeah yeah you just imagine him and terence having that conversation <laughs> said it's the last one we're filming this last of the season bob you just go off and do what you want We'll make it happen, but it's got to be cheap. So you yeah, have, yeah. So you can have two sets of cast, but don't let them meet. And mm. that's, your, that's your plot. That's your your starting point. Mm -hmm. But I, but that's part of what makes, especially the first episode, so intriguing. Is that you do have essentially? I mean, you have two different locations, but you essentially have three different plots. And you're trying to work, and the whole guessing game, and it's a really good one of like how they all intersect because you've got the SS Bernice, you've got um, uh, yeah, you've got my, yeah, and and then you've got um, Shona and Vorg, uh, and you're trying to work out how all these three things kind of naturally mesh together because you've got because uh, you've got the Doctor and Joe as well, haven't you? Who are supposed to be on Metabelius Free? Yes. So that's like yeah. a third plot. I was like, well, wh how, why are they here? Why are they? Yeah, 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 yeah. 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 And, and and as you say, it's it's the structure of it is kind of a product is is required by the specifications of the production, but it actually results in an incredibly imaginative setup. Well, that, um, who would ever? I said to you last night, who would ever guess 
that the answer to this like it's so out there the, the, the scope the idea of these miniaturized environments inside this machine that they've been caught up in the works of and it, i feel like he's just had this brilliant idea but he structures it so well and, and that first episode you know he wanted to write that i think um without any mention of the scope whatsoever mm -hmm. so it was just uh just the ship and just the planet but the scope didn't feature so you're going for the whole first episode well, what the hell how what's going on here and then the scope was going to be introduced in episode two but actually i think barriers yeah, said you need like, to put that yeah but it's right in front yeah. of you the whole time and you don't realize that that's what the plot is all about you get mm. what i really like is those little hints that something isn't right so you've got the deck the plate on the floor of the ship mm. that mm. the ship's inhabitants can't see but yeah. the doctor and joe can so you're thinking what's that about is that's a clue but they don't know what the answer is until they get get through it in episode two mm -hmm. so mm. it's it's a mystery that started and of course you get the great cliffhanger oh my god which yeah, then really yeah, yeah. suddenly if it oh but watching it the first time you have no idea that that's Borg's hand until episode two so yeah. it's a perfect mm. cliffhanger because it changes the whole story we're saying aren't we that the the hand coming okay it's not the most convincing special effects in the world but conceptually that is oh, no, such no. a brilliant idea yeah yeah yeah. and the idea and like and even with the the switch that you get in episode two which is a which is and it's it's very much how ideally um uh you know uh the cliffhanger should spin the story off into a completely new direction and it flips everything you've seen on its head um but uh but i'm just kind of backtracking slightly one, one of the details which i thought was really quite clever in the first half in terms of setting up what actually is going on is that you see the tardis materialize on the ss bernice and i think when they cut to the next scene with vorg and shona that's when the uh the uh, the miniscope it has an error flash up yes uh, that's right. mm -hmm. uh to coincide I've never with that. i've never ever noticed that yeah 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 no, like after the tardis materializes that's when the scope starts picking up that there's interference inside the machine um so it like it's all there it's uh, so like it is it does come as this huge surprise when you've got this big what the hell's going on hand coming out of nowhere that's mm. gonna how we're gonna refer to it from now on big what the hell's happening hand <laughs> um, but um no, very it's dirty all... fingernails as well yeah, <laughs> um but yeah you're 100 percent right that um uh uh when you go into the second episode it all kind of uh dovetails beautifully <laughs> yeah but again by the end of the second episode they're playing with that again as well because there's the moment where the doctor and joe think they've got outside but actually they've just got into works. the next oh, they've, well, they've got they've got into the works then they go into the drashig world thinking it's outside outside and it's not and again it's sort yeah, of wrong so putting the audience slightly honestly. so they're going somewhere else it's you know what it is it's a narrative in doctor who that's really exciting because it's constantly innovating all the time and it's surprising like you think you know where it's going and then they're in that next one and then um then the drashians go into the works and come out into interminer and it's just always and doing they, surprising well things. they're coming to the ship they're the ones that like the doctor and joe who get to go to all three yeah four locations yeah, yeah. don't they and they're fabulous mm. yeah although mm -hmm. we'll get onto them in a bit mm -hmm. all right yeah um, and it's and it is one of the things with the whole what makes 
especially with all the stuff with the drashigs, especially. But um, what part of what makes the the idea of the mini scope as the setting so so much fun? And I, I imagine it would have been like this for 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 children watching this in the seventies. Is that you know the, the the idea of the mini scope of like you can just put anything inside it. It literally gives you narrative justification to have just about anything inside it. So you could, you know, you, you could go to a hundred other random places in this story yeah. and it would still kind of work and it would still work within the rules of the story. I'll tell you um, what, if this was being made now, that's what would happen. You would see tons, like shit tons of environments, all CGI yeah. landscapes. It'll be a bit like the flux. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. 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 yeah it, uh, it would be a bigger story, but maybe not quite so good. Now I like it. Yeah. I, don't know, I quite well, like that. It's the containers of it means they focus on the characters. Yes, that's where all the gems are here. Mm -hmm. you know? Yeah, yeah. I think that was um, uh, that was. Oh, sorry. No, I was gonna. Uh, I was gonna say because we just get the tiny little hints of the other worlds that are in in the scope by seeing the Ogrons and the Cyberman, mm -hmm. which mm -hmm. I was thinking about um, because this this story was recorded at the end of season nine, so it was recorded just after the time monster so well before season 10 and the original conception for frontier in space was that the cybermen were going to be in it and so as the Ogrons and the master the cybermen yeah and what the, daleks? the cybermen would have been working for the daleks what yes oh. and it might make this work but did Terry was, Nation say no? I think Terry Nation oh, also said no. Did, but yeah. thinking about it, then you're giving the audience a tantalizing hint of what's to come in the next story ah, by showing Ogrons? A, an Ogron and a Cyberman. Oh. And whereas now we think, oh, well, that's just a nostalgia thing. When this was being planned, they right. were thinking of bringing the Cybermen back for, se for season 10. So this might have been like a like a flash forward and thinking oh look move over russell t barry and wow. terence we're going to do it they first yeah. cybermen and daleks Amazing. and the cybermen that's we're going to be second fiddle again yeah <laughs> oh, bless them, bless them. Uh, and bless you <laughs> thank you thank you i was trying to do that off camera so what no one noticed that's amazing i i think um sorry this is uh I, this before we went into that incredible story this is um I, I point out I meant to make earlier. One of the things I quite like about this story is because this is the first story after the three doctors. That's right. Yeah. Mm -hmm. um, so it's the first story of you know the doctor going back into time and space with 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 a free remit. Um, um, uh, and I like that you know aside from the sheer imagination of the story is that actually this I think we you were touching on this earlier. The stakes are quite low. Yeah. Uh, in this story because you're really only dealing with some you know, uh, middling bureaucrats, uh, the, this con man, and uh, these people on a, on a ship. So it's, you know, in the very first story, they get in proper outer space. Um, they, they go quite small and very contained. And I quite like that, because they could have done, you know, Planet of the Daleks or something, I guess, as their big kind of, we're back in time and space. Yeah, but, they yeah, go for, yeah. but they go for something really small and quite imaginative. And I think, I don't know, I just really like that. And again, uh, I'm just going to keep saying it, and character-driven. That's what I think works yes. it. Because my, you know me, my in with Doctor Who is good characters. And I remember when I first put this on, right, back in the day, I got the VHS and I saw that first scene with those dreadful grey masks. <gasps> yeah. 
those, those people yeah and um and you know the kind of staginess of the inter minor sets they're pulling the scope out it's wobbling all over the place and barry Letts says in the commentary oh god oh it wasn't supposed to wobble like that like oh my god i can't even watch this and i i remember i put it on i was like oh man i'm really not gonna like this like this looks cheap and nasty and then i was laughing within about two minutes and every single character, this is what I love about this story, every single character, despite the fact that some of them are bureaucrats, some of them are upper class and a bit racist, they're all likeable. They're all written with this incredible sense of humour that means you love being with every single character in this. I don't care what plot I'm in, whether it's those interminers all coming together doing their sitcom dialogue or, you know, the, the florid dialogue on the ship. Yeah, or... Borg and Scherner oh, bitching at each other. Yeah, uh, her first scene where she's saying, join join with me, he says. Come and do this, he <laughs> says. Here I am. One of my favourite, I think it is up there with one of my favourite, like, and, it, and it is written as a comedy moment, which, you know, sometimes doesn't always land in Doctor Who, mm. but... Um, uh, one of my absolute favourite moments in the story, and I think in classic Doctor Who, is when she's like, you know, we're entertainers, and there's that little musical score, she's just a little tap dance. <laughs> but then followed just by suddenly by him going, no. It's the perfect, perfect length of pause. I know! Absolutely and spectacular. That's a great deadpan moment, but even better is when they use the Eradicator to destroy the scope and then Karlik just goes, bravo, when it doesn't work. It's so funny. Where where they're about to to use the Eradicator on the machine and Plectrak realises he's standing in the way and (laughs) then has to move out of the way quickly and move the gun out of the way so it's not pointing at him. so funny. The whole story is so, so funny. And you know what? Like Dr. Hugh... Dr. Hugh... Humor. Hugh Humor. (laughs) Doctor Who humour, it can go one of two ways. And we've mentioned the Wi-Fi family before, you know. Like, it can bomb, can't it? Doctor yeah. Who But Robert yeah. Holmes is a very sophisticated writer. Yes. And I think mm. this is a story I didn't appreciate until I was a grown-up. As grown-up as I'm going to get, anyway. You're right, you haven't appreciated I, it yet, then, because no. I ain't happened yet. Because <laughs> I saw this when I was, was six, originally, when it was on The Five Faces of Doctor Who. Mm-hmm. I remember enjoying it because there was lots of monsters and lots of action, but I didn't really get it until the last few years, big time. And that's where its reputation for me has risen and risen and risen. Yeah. And whereas I would have said The Green Death was my favourite Pertwee story, these days I think this one just tips it because it's just a completely different, really, to anything else in the Pertwee years, which makes it stand out to begin with. But also, it's just, it's just great. <laughs> it really is. Something someone said to me recently uh, was the Perwi era, unlike any other era in Classic Who, is something that you have to watch in order, in order to appreciate what they're doing with the different stories. And I think if you watch Carnival of Monsters out of context, just as a story on its own, it's a really good story. If you watch it as part of the Perwi era, where he's been exiled on Earth that whole time, and then in the Three Doctors, he's got the TARDIS back. And then this is the first step out into space. It works on a whole nother level. And it's it, it's really colourful. It's really, really fun. But I think in context, it has a bit more... Yes, it, it does. Because I think it also changes Pertwee's Doctor 
because he yeah, relaxes. he's not such a prick anymore, no, is he? He relaxes from this point onwards, where he's back out in time and space, and he can do his own thing. And I think his doctor just settles here for me. I'm not a huge Pertwee fan from the early years, and I've spoken before about how much I don't like him in the demons because he's just such a knob the whole time. <laughs> he's horrible. If he hadn't been so horrible to everyone, they'd have sorted that in three episodes. Mm. But his his arsiness to everyone doesn't work with me because he's just in a bad mood and it doesn't feel right. I don't know whether it's his line playing or what, but it doesn't quite work for me. Whereas here He's well, so he's, relaxed. He's relaxed and he's still pompous and he's still he's still sort of morally crusading. But what they've worked out is that the pompousness is can be really funny yeah. if Joe gets the better of him. Yes. Mm, and suddenly yeah. Joe can undercut his pompousness. And so it becomes yeah, yeah. it becomes character and it's fun. And the the whole thing is set in mo the whole story is set in motion because she won't let him get away with not admitting he's wrong. <laughs> Don't you ever admit when you're wrong? No. no. That's what <laughs> yeah. And so, but he is stubborn because he he will not give yeah. this in. And then she gets I the better of him when they're on the ship and they're being interrogated for the first time, and she says, Oh, you tell him, Uncle. Yeah. We just see him do a double take, and so he's got to then he's on the back foot and it's just oh funny. and the relationship yeah. between the two of them do you remember moves that moves right up i think here do you remember that line what is it after they've heard claire say it a hundred times and they're running through the ship and he goes she goes how many times around the deck and he's like who's, who's counting, counting? <laughs> <laughs> i yeah it's it's a hundred percent that thing where it's I, I, you know it's been remarked upon a lot where pertwee is at his at his most charming when he has someone there to undercut it and turn and kind of spin his pomposity into charm. Yeah. Um, and I think, um, and other, you just reminded me when you were talking about the whole, oh, oh, uncle business where, um, and he's like, oh, you must be so tired. He's like, no. Um, <laughs> um, but, what about the fight scene? Yes. Oh yeah. Old fellow's got some pluck. <laughs> yeah. But, but I think, I think uh, you talk about, because it's still the, it's like a softer characterization but it's still it's still recognizably the same character yes. but i think i think i think it's really uh you know it's there from the offset in this story when they arrive and you know uh i, I so for me it's the whole business about the chickens uh, because Pertwee is like going, no, 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 you know, this this is the intelligent life form on this planet, and it's and it is just him, and and it's 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 Pertwee being dead faced serious about this, but what he's talking about is completely silly, um, and 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 so it doesn't, and so it's not played as like, oh, come now, Joe, those are chickens. Um, it's the doctor, it's the jokes on the doctor. Yes, there's actually an exchange that where he goes. Greetings, and then the chicken goes. <laughs> I, but also, and one of my favorite little uh, moments between the Doctor and Joe in that first story is when um, uh, they're trying to break out of the um the the cabin, and uh, and she produces the skeleton keys, yeah. um, uh, and he just has this huge smile on his face. And I didn't notice this um uh, until th this time I watched it actually, which is that when she gets stuck in there. Uh, later, she she we don't see her do it, but we see her unlocking her cabin again when she's been locked up, and she's pulled the exact same trick on the guards. They've learned how to write her smile. 
haven't yes, they? Yeah. And this runs all through season 10. They've, but do you know what? Do you know about the the excised moment in that cabin scene? Barry Letts talks about it in the commentary. He said, um, Joe was supposed to say to the guy who's locking the door, you know, oh, take as much time as you like. But she was sitting on the bed with Pertwee, so they took the line out because it looked really dodgy. <laughs> yeah, you don't no. want to think about that. No. <laughs> well, I do. No. But, you know. <laughs> but yeah, I mean, Joe is written very well in this because she is Thank not you. played she's not played stupid like usual no yeah. and she doesn't have the, those moments where she says look i know i'm just the ditzy companion well she gets that great moment in episode three doesn't she which is what actually was written as a padding scene but terence sticks wrote it and he manages to match holmes's style where she goes oh i get it <laughs> so we've got to go sideways he's like no not oh fit. yeah it's yeah. really sideways joe otherwise we'd end up back in the ship <laughs> so good. yeah yeah, and it's like a sweet moment of the Doctor kind of being patronised, in some ways being slightly patronising to her by kind of explaining what lateral thinking is, and she, and then she just inadvertently literally comes up with the solution, and it and it comes across really sweetly. Uh, and, and in fact, she does come up with the correct answer. I think actually he does have one moment of his old prickness in this, where he looks at her in episode one and he goes, Ah, oh, see, Joe, I told you we should have gone when I said. <laughs> yeah, when they get banged up. Oh, yeah, when they're, yeah, when they're at gunpoint, isn't it? Mm, yeah. Mm. But yeah, it's it's really good good story for the for the two of them because they're paired together for two Pretty and a half. Yeah. For nearly three, or oh, over three episodes. Yeah. Nearly three, yeah. Yeah, nearly, nearly three, three episodes. With every scene, they're there together, which is very unusual. Because I think because of the unusual structure where you've only got um, the Carl Sant allowed to meet, and the only people who can cross between the two storylines are the Doctor and Joe. And it is true that I, I do think, like in a in a really good archetypal Doctor Who story, you should put the Doctor and the Companion right at the heart of it, like they do here. Hmm. You know, some stories they're you know, yeah. think of a, the old Colin Baker story where they're, they're side, sidelined for 45 mm -hmm. minutes. Um, they're right at the centre of the mystery. Yeah. And yeah. just fucking hilarious and, as well. Yeah, and you can see the Doctor working it out with the audience as well. And he's one step behind us, which is always a good thing. Yeah. Do you, think, do you not think as well that they they play on like Pertwee's moral centre in this, i.e. when he's talking about the scopes being, you know, an offensive oh, yeah, life form yeah. and all this. But back in season seven, it, this would have been intolerable. If he, you know, he would have been a bit vicious and a bit nasty. And it's all written very charmingly yeah. and played quite gently. You know, I said to the High Council of the Time Lords, and I made such a fuss of myself. But they ban the things, you know, like it's yeah. it's nice rather yeah. than yeah. Yeah. To and you get that and, moment and, where he he turns around to Plectrack, doesn't he? And says livestock. <laughs> yeah. And yet later on in the episode, he's referring to all the people on the ship as, as, livestock. as livestock. Yeah. So he's yeah. he's flicking between yeah. the two. Yeah. I and, and I think again it's maybe part of it is because you know it's Robert Holmes who's writing this, who who also has a, a way of doing the doctor's morality but also without kind of making it too uh too overbearing i think one of my favorite moments is it is and it's it's like a proper pertwee kind of like how dare you kind of thing which is when he comes out of the miniscope and he's asking he's like whose machine is this and and vorg and 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 and, and, then, and they all, they, they perk up, it's like, who is the owner of this machine? And then as soon as he starts going off about how immoral it is, you can just see the looks on their faces. <laughs> <laughs> oh, mm -hmm. 
Oh, I suck at it. Yeah, which is just the way to do it. Where it's 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 undercut. It's like it doesn't un undercut the point that the doctor is making, but it's there's a lightness of touch to it that makes it very enjoyable. Also, as well, I don't think we can undersell how good Katie Manning is at this point. I said to you, did I, that in those scenes when the Dreshens pop up out of the marsh, now I think they're beautifully realised for the time, but it's her reaction to it where she's like, my God, they're turning around! You know, she's so convincing in those scenes that you you believe they're in danger, even though there's obviously no puppets there popping up well, out of the marsh. They did literally just leave her in halfway up to her yeah. waist in mud. Did you notice <laughs> that? She was halfway down the bog. Yeah, well, it was a weird moment because when she steps in the mud and then she gets stuck and you're like, kind of like, oh, okay, you know, they were doing the doctor, the, the companion getting stuck thing. Okay, but then you cut back to it and she's actually properly submerged. <laughs> I, yeah, I, it, you know, it, it, it did remind me, I think it was on the behind the scenes for, um, I think, Planet of the Daleks, where I can't remember her name, who plays, she's the, uh, the, fe the blonde female Thal in the Jane story. Hill. Yeah, yeah, sure. Um, uh, and... <laughs> yeah, her, yeah. Uh, her. I had a picture of her you recently. Did, you did, you met her. I look great in that yeah. picture, honestly. Honestly, I look amazing. Oh, this... Fuck Jane Howe, I look terrific in that picture. Sorry, please. This... Yeah, this was that was a most unexpected development. Um, but she, uh, I think she, in, in the behind the scenes of that story, she talks about how uh, she was. I think she was trying to approach her character with, a, like, seeing the Daleks, and she was trying to play it quite real and with some, <laughs> like, uh, like with a lot of psychological, with a kind of psychological edge to it. And then Katie Manning said something like, "Oh, it's not quite like that." And and and, uh, and she, yeah, she was just reflecting on. I was like, "No, Katie was absolutely right. This, <laughs> that's, that is the way to do." It. As soon as I, they were just like, "Just do what Katie's doing," and and just like she's bang on the money. What Barry Lett says is that he always wanted to cast a doctor and a companion that even if what was on the screen was very tedious, that you want to watch those characters and you want to go on that journey. For example, Frontier in Space, where they're banged up in cells a lot. Like that might not be very exciting, but you love those characters. So you go on that journey. Now, I'm not saying um, that what's going on around them in this is tedious because I think it's bloody amazing. But their performances just elevate this i think and their relationship is so good in this yeah because all those scenes wandering around the the workings of the miniscope could be really repetitive and yeah. quite dull because they've right. only got i mean it's a wonderful set and they, but they've only got a finite bit of set and they've got to sell it but because it's the two of them wandering around and just chatting and the doctor being fascinated by the workings and joe not quite getting what's going on it just, you could just watch them for hours doing that. Yeah, marvellous. Mm. Honest to God, we take a break for two minutes, <laughs> we record for 40 minutes, and they go and announce the new fucking doctor. <laughs> I know, I know. I was literally like, as we were recording, then my phone was buzzing. I was like, what the, what's going on? And then I, we, we stopped recording and going for a tea break, and the new doctor is announced. Crazy. I hate to say it, yeah, but I'm going to be unbearable now. He's hot, black, and beautiful. And gay. And gay and Scottish. And Scottish. Yes. Hooray for another Scottish doctor. A fine, a fine line there. I don't, I don't mean to uh, sound weird, but thank God a black doctor. Like, like, and I know Joe Martin was the doctor, but she didn't get full seasons, did she? But no, no, no. 
No, it's not. And like, I, there, there, I, in, there's obviously a difference between, you know, being, you know, like a John Hurt style doctor, like a one-off doctor, and then being the lead proper doctor. So no, absolutely amazing that they've got a person of colour in the role. Absolutely delightful. I'm just stunned it's not a black woman, to be honest. I really thought that was where we were going. Yeah, uh, me too. I'm still surprised by this, and I'm still... I trust Russell completely. I think he his casting has never been wrong. But I just wonder if this now means we're going to get lots of internet comments that Jodie was a oh. failure and oh, yeah, I know. a failure. And I'm not ready for that. All the anti-women people will be out. All the anti-black yeah. people will be out. All the anti-gay yeah. people will be oh, out. Oh, my God. Yeah. Have at it, the internet. We ain't getting involved. Yeah. No. <laughs> That's right. That's right. It's a perfect firestorm of terribleness. I am not going to be logging into Twitter. Madness. Uh, I know. Mm -hmm. But then again, then again, our I think our feeds, generally speaking, are full of people who are very happy with this choice. So I'm expecting lots of very happy people. Very cool. I don't think I've actually seen. Uh, uh, is it Nakuti uh, Gatwa? Gatwa? Is that how you say his name? I think so. Um, I think so. Yeah. Hottie McHottie is what I'm going to call you. <laughs> I... <laughs> oh my God, I... I bet he could snog beautifully. Oh, my word. <laughs> I, I haven't actually seen him, I've seen him in anything. So, no, I'm... I haven't... Like, I... You know, so there's a good chance... I'm going to go and watch that now, because there's a good chance we might see a nude in that. <laughs> uh, well... Well, it's also got um, Gillian Anderson in it, so you have plenty of reasons yeah. to go see that. She was my number one pick to be the new Doctor. So, I wasn't that far off, was I? Right, probably. Right. That's, that's right. In the same universe. In the same universe. Maybe she's um, on my profile, maybe? I don't know. I, I think know. so. I think so. I mean, she's too busy playing Margaret. Is she still playing? No, she's not playing Margaret Thatcher anymore. Um, I would like to say something about Chris Chibnall, though. Uh-huh. <laughs> He's still the only showrunner to date that's had the nuts to cast a woman as the Doctor. Twice. Good on him. Yeah, absolutely. No, and, abso and you know what? At the end of the day, nobody can take away the boldness of his of his initial casting. No. Absolutely not. How no, mad. Um, Mm -hmm. Sorry. Yeah. <laughs> and and because of him, almost certainly there will be many more female Doctors. I'm sure of that. Yeah, there will be another one. Well, look here. Okay, we are professionals, and even That's though right. the news has dropped, I feel as if we should go back to talking about why we're genuinely here. And I have a question for both of you to discuss. Ooh. Oh. Hmm. Right. Hmm. A Robert Holmes script and a Bob Baker script both use a similar concept in a very imaginative way. Who uh, do you think uses the idea better? Discuss. Ooh. Now, that's... No, you've just done this deliberately because you know I love both of those stories. And mm. um, I have done the hamster on Nightmare of Eden and was talking about the boldness of the um, of the idea. Mm. And it, it, I think Robert Holmes uses it better in a... Well, no, I was going to say a better in a comedic way but he doesn't actually use the idea in a comedic way it's the reactions around it that are comedic oh, and it's not yeah. the central concept the co central concept is treated really seriously and it's the same in nightmare of eden so i don't know i don't know the answer to that over to you jack <laughs> oh no um i was hoping you would come up with a very insightful answer i go mm, yes i agree 
Um, uh, I, I don't, uh, I, I, I think it's better done here just because, uh, uh, the concept of the miniscope is central to the entire story. Um, in night and uh, not to say that it isn't in Nightmare of Eden, but Nightmare of Eden has a lot of other has a you know has the whole drug smuggling plot, which is does intersect with. Um, uh, I, I don't want to call machine, it machine, aren't they? To yeah. so get it from one to another, that's their their method of transportation. That's right, that's right. But you know the 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 entire the entirety of Carnival of Monsters is basically within this machine. You know, external to it and within the the guts of the machine and even um, the scenes that feature on into minor they're trying to use the scope in various yes. political shenanigans aren't they yeah so just so, and i it's hard i think just because it's the the first one to to do the concept and explore it so so comprehensively i i i give the points to carnival of monsters i think but i will say i do i do have quite a soft spot for nightmare of eden I think Eden very cleverly uses the the CET machine to capture the villains at the end, oh, which I think is really yes, good. yeah, very clever. Here, the climax is just throwing, throwing a leash and they go and back, they disappear. Yeah, and not much is sort of made of that. Whereas the Doctor is using the machine in a very clever way in Eden. But here, I think that the miniaturized environments within the machine are better realized, better characterized. Like there, you just see a load of clips from Space 1999. Didn't yes. You? I think going out on location for both of the places that they walk into, yeah. so for the trashy planet and the ship, and for the ship, yeah. work really well at selling those as their own spaces. I think perhaps what's surprising is that in Nightmare of Eden, that it had even a hope in hell of being as colourful and as imaginative and as clever as this. And I'd say it almost gets there. Yeah. I think, and that's the Bob Baker's yes, credit. I think because you have that moment of the Doctor and Romana doing the opposite of what's going on here, of jumping in yeah. to... They're trying to jump out here, they? <laughs> And here, they're doing doing the opposite so it's just different enough but you've got that great cliffhanger of them jumping into your tv yeah. whereas here you've got the doctor and joe crawling around in the back of your tv exploring what's going on and it is interesting because this also this has like um a political message or commentary at least yeah so it has got some depth to it but then nightmare of eden has the drug running yeah commentary so they're both doing kind of interesting things, things yeah it. Mm. yeah yeah I think, um, uh, you know, I, I, well, I, there's, I think there's a difference in the, in the kind of, I suppose, political messaging where I think Nightmare of Eden is being very overt and very direct in, in its kind of don't do drugs kind of messaging. Whereas, you know, Robert Holmes, he, he the way he, I think, likes to do things, he's, he likes to oh, nudge. It's kind of yeah, spy, isn't it? It's yeah, like that line, which is a piss take of that politician. Yeah. You know, mm -hmm. it's. If you know it, then you get it. If you don't, it's yeah. fine, you know? Yeah. yeah, and kind of to spin off into, I, I suspect, territory, Joe, you're, you, you're very eager to discuss, is that uh, I think he's most, the most fun he has is using the whole idea of the miniscope to comment on Doctor Who itself. Oh, yeah. Um, uh, where it's, you, called yes. it's called Carnival Bloody Monsters. 
Well, exactly. And you know, <laughs> well, the you, children and... love them. <laughs> They're great favorites for the children. <laughs> that's right. That's right. And and of course, you've got like the the machine, the the strange machine that transports you. Uh, ca in theory, can transport you anywhere in, in literally in time or space. You know, the SS Bernice is from the past. The Drashigs are from the future. Um, and then you've got the kind of you've got Vorg, who is this terribly dressed, extravagant showman of a, of a uh, who is also funny but also a bit of a, a bit of a con man uh and you've got his you know a, a, his companion assistant as well and it's all and it's all a bit of a it it, it it kind of reminded me in some ways of you know the piss taken the one doctor uh where you have um mm -hmm. banto banto is a banto banto zane uh, and banto zane Sally Ann, who are doing the con of that they're the Doctor. And Carnival of Monsters feels like, in some ways, a very, very early prototype of that kind of joke. You yes, said I that did. yesterday! Because he said that got, last night! Yes, what you've got is um, analogues of the Doctor and Joe in each place. So you've got Borg and Scherner, and you've also got Claire and her father, Major Daly, who are older man younger companion and sort of similar sort of relationships where one's in charge one's was a bit silly mm. with Borg and Scherner what I like is it's turned it on its head so Scherner is actually the clever one but you don't clock that because you're yeah, talking yeah, by yeah. Borg as the big entertainer but she's the smart one in that yeah. relationship Mm, yeah, yeah. Really, really it's really clever and she's the one who sort of puts puts things together and is chibi involved to do things but he's the one who ultimately will take all the credit yeah. in the way the doctor would from Joe. yeah yeah, yeah. and it, you say it's a comment on doctor who can you think of anything more doctor who right than this entire story is built around this astonishingly sophisticated machine yeah that he's run in a card match in some seedy back end backwater space station. And it's going wrong. And it looks like a bit of old crap cardboard. I mean it's so right. Doctor Who, isn't yeah. it? Yeah, I know. It's 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 uh it's as as the doctor himself says in the miniscope, it's vintage stuff. Um, Robert Holmes likes adding that sort of layer of kind of nastiness yeah. and sort of seediness to Doctor. Like it's never polished, it's never pristine. No, everything is a bit grubby underneath. Yeah. I really like yeah, yeah. It's 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 you know I meant to I meant to say this earlier and and you've just given me a great opportunity to mention it. It's when Vorg is introducing the concept of the miniscope and it's essentially a, a PowerPoint presentation on the <laughs> miniscope screen and um, Michael Wisher just goes amazing. <laughs> it's like watching Doctor Who with my dad. It is. <laughs> it is. It's exactly the same. Where it just oh is that it? Yeah, that and kind of. I swear there's a commentary on Mary Whitehouse in this where, with the agrometer, where it's yeah. like, oh no, we can't have it be too violent. I'm going to turn down the agrometer and then oh, all yeah, yeah. start behaving themselves. Yeah. Oh, yes. Yeah. All of that. It's putting in that false bit of peril into your story because you need a bit of excitement. Yeah, 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 yeah. But the it's specimens exactly the same. Will start hurting each other. Yeah. And so, so we can't stop. have that. Yeah. It's yeah so I, it works on so many levels, this story. Yeah, I had. I gotta say, I hadn't thought about that side about the idea that you know it's kind of being like, well, you know, we've got to bring down the tension somehow because that's what that's how the story progresses. So let's just literally do that. Oh, yeah. <laughs> that's very do you funny. Know what bit I think is absolutely incredible, and I said to you, you know, I, I, 
it's the bit it's not the bit where he picks up the TARDIS it's the bit where the screwdriver goes dong dong mm. and then the eye is like and that is an incredible bit of CSO it looks mm. so convincing and it's very funny and it's very sinister at the same time and, and that's very silly it's a hard mix because, to get yeah. right yeah 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 things. and yeah. the fact then it comes to Leslie Dwyer with his his eye in this tatty bit of cardboard going mm, you know what i'm not above seeing things but i think i can see two tellurians in the works yeah i i was for a brief moment when i saw that i mean other than you know there's an obvious kind of monty python kind of quality to the like the, the jabbing but it's it's that kind of thing that you get with doctor who where you contrast one image that looks kind of silly and then you immediately cut to another image which is just as uh, audacious, but it's it's weird. It's similarly weird, but a bit more sinister. So you go from the jabbing to the to the eye peering through, uh, and it's that tonal it's balancing act that Doctor Who does. Harry Letts is pioneering of special effects. Now, don't get me wrong; I've seen the Green Death, and when they're going through those maggots on that cart, it can go horribly wrong. Sometimes it goes beautifully right. Yeah, there's the moment you pointed out last night, Joe, where the Doctor's in. The working of the miniscope and Joe's on the ship, oh, and you see it both yeah. ways. So you see the doctor looking at Joe in the ship. It's CSO, and isn't it? yeah, Behind. and then yeah. it cuts to Joe looking out at the miniscope and then walking through. So there's a real sense of scale, and it's yes. just using a very simple effect that they use for like the weatherman. You yeah, know? really, really good. And yeah, that yeah. I think is the biggest difference between this and Nightmare of Eden. Is obviously during Nightmare of Eden, the director walked out. And Graham Williams had to step in, or the director was fired, and Graham Williams had to step in. Uh, and there's an unevenness to some of the direction, and I think... And performances. Yeah, the fast sort of kicks in because the actors are going a bit right. I think Barry Letts has an absolute control over the tone yeah. of this thing. Yeah, yeah. I don't think anybody left this story with t-shirts saying, the carnival is over, you know? <laughs> <laughs> but this is it. I mean, Barry Letts isn't a showy director. No. But he casts brilliantly, oh, and he let he knows his actors will will sell this. He casts everyone is cast absolutely perfectly. Go on then, both of you. I want you both to choose who do you think is like the most perfect bit of guest casting in this. Oh, let's start question. with Jack. Um, it's 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 really hard, uh, but I am gonna go with um, I think Michael Wisher. Um. It's hard, it's hard because, you know, because with th those characters, I, it, it wasn't, it's not this time that I, it occurred to me, but it was the last time I saw it, which was actually quite recently, uh, when I was watching Carnival of Monsters that time, with, uh, and, you know, you've got the, the official species all having their little dialogue with each other. And I, I, and, you know, I was like, oh, this is just space jargon and space stuff. But, then, but I actually was really surprised at how, engaging i found those characters like their political machinations even though you know you could just go these are this is literally a nameless species a nameless gray species on inter minor a planet zog thing but i was like i'm actually interested in their machinations this is literally um, the dolcians from the dominators written with wit and humor and yeah, like political they're, commentary they're gray-faced bureaucrats they are literally yeah, gray-faced gray -faced bureaucrats. bureaucrats and they're supposed yeah, yeah. to be boring and their plots are supposed to be boring but they're so funny yeah. they're funny because yeah, yeah. And, but and, they're and, funny and, because they don't realize that they're funny yeah 
Exactly. It's exactly that thing. It's that, it's that advice that um, Douglas Adams says is that, you know, as soon as you put humor into a story, an actor will choose to do a silly voice or a silly walk where, and nobody's doing that here. No, and that's so, Barry Letts again, though, because he wouldn't let, he said, right, whatever we're doing, he always says this on every commentary, we're going to play this for real. If you're a grey face alien on this planet, you're going to play it as if you're really a grey face alien and not an actor having a lot of fun in a BBC studio. And I yeah. think that comes across. But 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 I but this is where I think Michael Wish's strength as an actor comes in because you because you can give that direction to an actor, but the lines that they have in in this script are definitely funny, and they are it's and you don't and, and I think what Michael Wisher does is that he's very good at. It's like in his performance that you kind of get that tonal perfection where. You know, it's it. He he does the comedy so well. It is so deadpan and so precise. My also, favorite moment is where he says, "One has twinges mm. <laughs> In, when when they're setting him off for being compassionate." No, and it's just compassionate. Yeah, <laughs> mm, yeah, yeah. Um, but at the same time, uh, it's it's funny. But there there is no sense in the performance of. Uh, anything other than complete conviction in what he's doing. There's no sending up, uh, which is wonderful. Well, uh, you, okay. you do yours, and I'll do mine. I can't choose... I'm having difficulty choosing between two, and I so I'm going to go for the two. I think Vork and Scherner are oh absolutely beautiful casting. Um, Leslie Dwyer and Cheryl Hall are just perfect together, and they've got really great chemistry. They've got chemistry like Pertwee and Manny. Yeah, true. It, just for this one story, you believe that they've been together a long time, and they've been on all these adventures. They've been to the Wallerian markets. They've been all these places, done all these things together. She was the showgirl that he's rescued to come and do his show. She's had enough, though, isn't she? Yeah. Have a meeting out of your hands, you said. Yeah. Yeah, just and I think they are just every single scene of theirs is is a masterclass in how to do those kind of characters and play them for real. Yeah, I love them. Did you ever hear like uh, Cheryl Hall tells the story in, in the commentary where she goes, "Right, so we we said to Barry, let's write. We wanted to do that. We want to do that bit, and then we're going to do the carnival talk finale, Lacani, and all that. And then she goes, and then he wanted to play the spoons as well. And Barry Letts went, "No, that's enough." <laughs> <laughs> Little did he know. Yeah, uh, but, uh, he, I, Leslie Dwyer had the potential to be a good doctor, I think, oh, as well. He'd have been, been a really funny. eccentric been and funny, and mm. but uh, right, everything from their costumes, which are absolutely ridiculous, really, really stupid costuming. Excuse me, I was thinking but, about if Jodie Whittaker had worn that costume, you know, throughout <laughs> her entire run. What for? That's, oh, that's what, <laughs> those fabulous planets yeah. all in her hair. But the way yeah. that they contrast against the grey backdrop of Inter Minor, and they're the only colour in that world is, is yeah, I, I love everything about Can them. Can I both. then put in a vote for Tenio Evans as Major Daly, who I think makes an absolute meal of every single line that he gets. He's hilarious. Well, I wouldn't mind that on the club wall, what? Uh, yeah. when he's asleep and the monster's attacking, he's like, what, 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 what? <laughs> he's so funny. Every line he has. 
And he's a pretty problematic character because he says a couple of very racist lines. He says at one point, wouldn't I wouldn't have them on the plantation. I wouldn't have the madrasa. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So he's lazy, know, he's yeah. openly racist. And that is kind of authentic for the, for the time. It's, a, it's, a, it's an unusual touch for class. Yeah, I don't. Yeah, I, and it's not. I don't think it is at all played sympathetically. You know, no. I think it is. Yeah, but he's the character you like. I think. I, oh, I despite did. that, I thought I thought he was very likable. Um, at the end, I I was concerned because Claire and Major Daly were inside that simulation, and they were you know some spots. They were mm -hmm. literally. Yeah, that well, was that was yeah. where my investment was. Um, I do want to say a quick word for. Um, what's her name who plays claire oh she's great as well. because yeah she sells those moments where she does yeah. she can sort of remember that they've been here for a while and like that bit at the end where she says it does seem like a long voyage somehow and she just the way she looks and she sells mm. it all with a look and then it goes daddy that, yeah but you know what's good between those two is i think she's playing it very classically and quite naturalistically, and he's mm. playing it very theatrically. And yet I completely believe they're from the same world yeah. and that they are father and daughter. Mm. It's also just on the subject of act actors in this in this episode, it feels a bit strange that we haven't even mentioned anything about Ian Marta being here. Yes. I know, I know. Um, isn't, he, isn't he extraordinarily good? Oh, he's terrific. And uh, I mean, and you can kind of see why if you're just looking at this story, um, uh, why they went, it's like, well, yes, this young man is perfect for like the young man kind of adventure stuff. Because uh, he's <laughs> doing the boxing with the doctor and all it that. It really is basically Harry Sullivan in the 20s, isn't it? Pretty I, much, yeah. I to tell you, Jack, I used to box for my school. Cool. Um, uh, well, I'll have you know. Um, uh, yeah, yeah, no, I, I think... wrote by John L. Sullivan himself. Queensbury rules, naturally. My golly, the fella's got some pluck. What? Mm. <laughs> I mean, the yeah. dialogue in this story is so good, yeah. it's so quotable. Yeah, yeah and he looks does a lot with not very much. Yeah, okay. yeah, I would, I would agree. I, I, I think it would, I, I don't think he's a standout, but he is a great part of the ensemble. Like a great ensemble player. And he looks great in a uniform as well. Speaking of... <laughs> Jack Shanahan, honestly, you changed. You changed honestly. <laughs> the other week, you were banging on about how hot Andrew Garfield was in Dallas in Manhattan. And now this. I don't remember that, but it is true. Um, Very hot. You see him in that yeah. Spider-Man costume. My God, that was so tight. Sorry. <laughs> um, sorry. Um, what's oh, the dialogue. Yeah, sorry. Is... Well, <laughs> I, always i listen to a lot of these commentaries obviously i like it because it gives a lot of context and everyone always says uh, elizabeth Sladen says in the time warrior it's just very sayable dialogue robert holmes's dialogue it's not forced but what he manages to do here is he manages to write period dialogue realistically he manages to write science fiction dialogue which doesn't sound like clunky exposition and he manages to write the doctor and the companion like with great humor and i just think he's such a such a good writer yeah, and political dialogue as well yeah. between the the free interminans and sort of doing all of their political shenanigans as well i'm perfectly convinced this is one of the best classic who scripts he sketches mm. in all those worlds really really quickly yeah and you know exactly mm. where you are and who these people are without well, you know knowing them. the interminable machinations with the the brother, don't you? Yeah, and, and that you know he he's we don't even see him, and... but you can see 
you can see him in your head. You know what kind of character he is from. We absolutely know Vaughan Scherner's background because she was part of the All Star Dance Company, and he's that band of hoofers, crook that's been going around the universe. Yeah, Major yeah. Daly and that they're off to Bombay. Yeah, aren't they? Yeah, they're they're the the expats abroad. It's, mm. it's clever. It's really clever. Yeah, and also it just occurred to me now, just as a, a as a sidebar. Uh, I, I, and I know it's not necessarily pl playing directly with the properties of the TARDIS itself, but is this the first story where we see, you know, the dimensions of the TARDIS changing? Like when, you know, when it's taken out of the miniscope and then it expands. Yeah, uh, we can see that in, we, it happens in Planet of Giants, doesn't it? But we don't see it happen. Oh, yeah. And it happens in Legopolis. Taken well. down to the... To the size of about a quarter of an inch. And do you know what? Aurum's library just goes, <gasps> Brick a brick! <laughs> it's so funny. What's yeah. in that cupboard? Yeah. Why does it keep changing size? <laughs> I actually, actually, again, weird sidebar, but on the subject of Brick a brick, um, I really did like it how, you know, you go straight into episode two and you see Vorg just pulling the TARDIS out, going, just a bit of Brick a brick stuck in the, yeah, stuck in the circuit too. So funny. But you know, Barriette says as well um, that he didn't, he doesn't like the special effects because it does, it is very 2D when it's kind of growing. Sure, yeah. That he actually did that again when he did Alice in Wonderland or Gulliver's Travels, one of the two, and he perfected the special. So he was a person that would pioneer these effects and he would keep trying until he got it right. He so said, I think it sold better when it's Pertwee. Yeah. Coming, yeah, when he yeah, comes when out. He's, yeah, yeah than, than the TARDIS. Yeah. Mm. Okay, guys. Well, we have to uh, address the spaceship eating monsters in the room. Yeah. Which the, ones? The Drashics. Not the Plesiosaur. Oh my god, the Plesiosaur. <laughs> By uh, golly. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Never seen such a large thing in all my life. <laughs> uh, yeah, yeah, no, the Drashic. The bit what? Major Taylor has got a fucking machine gun and the trashed head comes out of the ship and he's like firing. It is. Uh, oh my god. I mean, it's one of those moments where you're just like, what other show would be doing this? I know. And a great Target novel cover. Yeah, yeah. really. That sells that moment so better so than the TV show. Yeah. <laughs> Um, but yeah, let's talk about the Drashings. Well, I just think it's great that we've just got a monster that doesn't have a voice. It's bloody massive and they pull it off. Yeah. The sound effect for the roar of the Drashing yeah. is, uh, that's, this is Brian Hodgson's very last story doing the special sound. And he goes out on a real high because everything has got a proper, mm. proper soundscape. So the soundscape of the miniscope. But then the roar of the Drashings is really, really brilliant. And it helps sell... Did they as... use um, like real jaws of dogs? I think so. In the monsters, yeah, because the... yeah, because the maggots have got boxes. Yeah, that's right. I think, I think they've got Jack terriers Russell or something, something like that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Mm. But it's brilliant puppetry. It is and surprisingly just, good. Yeah, this could go wrong just, as well. Yeah. Have you seen Invasion of the Dinosaurs? This can go wrong. Yeah, and it's because they did this so well that they thought they could do those dinosaurs. Right. And ah, didn't quite as a work. sidebar, they couldn't, but it's no. still a great story. Um, but yeah, I, I think the hugest and the way they move is sold really yes. well. And yeah, yeah, you see sort of the segmented bodies that's yeah. moving oddly, and but then they they shoot them on film going mm. into the scope in an extraordinary shot where it bursts through into the circuit. 
And it, yeah. I think yeah. that, that they look at their most convincing because mm -hmm. there's a few bits later on like, well, where one's dead and they're CSO'd into the background and it's like, well, okay, mm -hmm. that's a bit clunky. Or when the one comes to Inter Minor <laughs> and it's like there in the background of that dodgy set. Yeah. You know, but for the, on the whole, like Doctor Who going big, yeah, this don't usually work well. Kroll, Scarasan, the Merka, this don't usually work well. But this is one time where they really got it right, mm -hmm. I think. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And um, I, and I, again, like, you know, there is the famous story about how uh, Drashigs is, is um, an anagram of dish rags. Naughty <laughs> um, uh, so, man, you know, Robert Holmes, I'm telling you. He was, he was. Um, uh, it's clearly the same man who was just like, you know what, for your giant squid monster, he's literally just farting the whole time. <laughs> it's the same um, man who's like, I'm going to make you love Oscar Bochaby, and, and I'm, I'm going to stab him. him to death in the um, restaurant. But yeah, like, and even though you can kind of tell that they are, you know, these big hand puppets, that that like the design of the face is is wonderful, and I I love the huge kind of grinning quality they have to them. But they also, look so happy, don't they? It's like the first one is popping up and saying, "Hiya, hiya, <laughs> hi, hungry." <laughs> yeah. I, but also, but you do get like, and obviously you do get the, you do get a couple of shots where it looks like it's uh, like somebody's hand and the arm and they're waving it around. Oh, but you do is. get it is somebody's I hand mean, in there. Yeah, uh, the uh, case in point. Um, <laughs> but you do, but I'm thinking of that shot. I think it's in episode episode three where the, um, is it episode three they appear or episode yeah episode three. End of episode two, two, isn't it? Yeah. yeah. End of episode two, going into episode three. But you do get that shot where they're kind of like, you can see them kind of moving along and it's that worm-like movement that yeah. they have. And, and it's like shot from behind. So it, it's like you can actually see the, the back end of the monster. So it doesn't feel like, oh, it's like half of a monster and you can't see the rest of it because it's the rest of somebody's body and, and their arm. Like they're a whole creature. That's an, an ambitious monster. Yeah, and ambitious monsters really generally don't work in classic Who, and I think they all went to great lengths to make this. Mm. And, and it's not just the puppetry; it's how it's shot as a whole. Um, it's um, the reactions of the actors yeah. as well, and the music. All of it. All of it. Just it's just brilliant. Mm. And we get one of those wonderful Doctor Who cliffhangers where the companion says, look, before it <laughs> and then 12 seconds later, a crashing <laughs> appears out of nowhere. She's got Janet Fielding levels of precognition. <laughs> this, has, this has three exceptional cliffhangers yes. and all of them are doing what I love. It's di driving the plot in another direction. It's not just a moment. Some of them are moments of jeopardy, but all so Pertwee coming out the machine. Yeah. That's the him yeah. minor, then he can sort the thing out. The, the drash is coming up. Yeah, because then they're going to go into the miniscope yeah. like the Doctor and Joe. And then the hand coming in is explaining, well, they're inside a machine. Mm -hmm. It's, yeah, brilliant. Mm. Yeah, terrific. I, and, 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 you know, you know, I was thinking about, you know, the low stakes of the story. I, I also I think it's so cute when you know they're looking at the side of the miniscope and you can kind of and you, it's a little they're banging on the side of it and it's like rattling a little bit. Um, but um, uh, in terms, of, it, it, those are the most ferocious creatures in the galaxy banging on the side of that machine. I how great is it when they're like wobbling? You know they're moving along and you see uh, Vorg's hand go like, "Oh, get out of here!" Yes, shoo, <laughs> shoo. 
was a bit where he sets all the mask out of the light and they've just got this flame that's yeah, in front of the in front of It's so funny. I, uh, but yeah. that's one of Pertwee's great heroic moments with the sonic screwdriver. Oh, yeah. He just looks magnificent, doesn't he? With that. <laughs> and again, marsh gas, that's basically farts. Yeah. <laughs> it's yeah. Robert Holmes's fart agenda all over again. That's right. You know what this story has got? It's got some fucking chutzpah, hasn't it? Yeah. It's got some cojones. And it's, it's got ambition, but man, oh man, they just go for it. <laughs> yeah, they're all on the same page and they're all going to make this work. And I think, you know, it may be in a lesser story, you wouldn't go with the Jurassic as much as you do. But I think come the end of episode two, you're so won over by the concept, the characters, like the the smart plotting. Like you're just like, let's just, where the hell is this going? Let's go with it, you know? Yeah. And and it is also you know in that in that tail end of the story where you know they they escape their circuit. It is actually like quite a exciting idea. Like if I was a kid watching this, I would have been hugely excited at the thought like these giant spaceship eating slugs have escaped and they and you know when they burst out of the um out of the SS Bernice, it's like you know it's a bit of a shoddy effect, but the idea is so exciting of just like you know you're on this. 1920s ship and outburst these giant monsters. Do you know what I thought yesterday when I was watching it, right? Because of all the anti-immigration jibes of the Interminans, as Carlick was being eaten, I was imagining it was Boris Johnson. <laughs> no! <laughs> it's the Just... only end for him. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. Um, uh, something to bear in mind in your local council elections. That's <laughs> when the drastics just start coming in. Oh, uh, yeah, just... Also... Do you know what mm -hmm. that tracks line about the Drashens? They ate a spaceship. <laughs> it's so great. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I but but I also kind of like how, and this is going back to like um the stakes of the story because you know the the whole scheme that they they cook up is that you know we'll unleash the monsters and they'll cause all this damage and there'll be a public outroar and you know we'll get we'll it, you know we'll make our country great we'll make our planet great again and independent and all that kind of stuff. And, you know, and they let them loose and they cause a little bit of havoc, but then, you, you know, Vogue just shoots them with a couple of guns and then the threat's over. And it's still quite low stakes in the end. And it all goes wrong because Vogue, who's the one, the immigrant coming in, is the one who saves the day. So... That's right. That's yeah, so right. it will change the history of the planet. Because... Well, don't you love as well, the, way they, the thing that he has to use... Yeah, he just pulls it out of the bag at one point and goes, oh, I remember getting this bit of equipment. From my, yeah. from my National Service Day. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and it doesn't feel like, you know, the microwave from Resolution that comes in handy at the end that everyone's carrying around. It, it, it's quite... You feel like Borg actually was someone who... Yeah, yeah. it's quite yeah. quite nicely done. Yeah, I... Ah, oh, and it's, it's a lovely... It's a lovely ending when, you know, you just see Vorg uh, going off on yet another con... I also, you know, you know, you talk about the um, uh, uh, about Vogue being this kind of version of the Doctor, but I, what I really loved as well is like, ah, you know, this uh, this ID from President Zar, uh, President Zarb, and it's 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 the kind of name dropping the Doctor does all the time. <laughs> It's yeah. like a real, it like it pre, it, it's it, re, it reminded me of the psychic paper going like, ah, oh, yes, look, here is President Zarb's signature. Um, <laughs> You've got a nerve selling that. Wasn't <laughs> yeah. the great Zarb that guy we met at the carnival? Um, 
and also, and also, <laughs> and also, he's like, you know, he owns this machine, and he, um, and he's like, oh, I, I don't have the manual for it, which again is like, well, the doctor does. Again, things. I think he really likes tatty, less polished. Yeah. Well, it's like think later on when he's writing the doctor and that, you know, Rebus operation. It's like, yeah, well, oh, yes. know, and oh well, I did better at you in studies. I think, like, yeah. Mm -hmm. I don't know. I just think he doesn't he like that. he doesn't like it to be Star Trek, does he? He wants it to have that kind of layer of yeah. He doesn't want the Doctor as some galactic no. force. He wants the Doctor as a talented eccentric. He probably yeah. appalled by what they done probably. with the Doctor in the new series. You know, yeah, yeah, yeah. the most important uh, person in the universe. I and yeah, and you know, even at the end, uh, the Doctor is like, "Oh, you're you're a vagabond," and the Doctor <laughs> takes quite a bit of almost looks like he takes a bit of pride in that <laughs> uh, um but yeah no I, I i just love their ending where you know vorg sets off on yet another it probably inevitable failure of a harebrained scheme but um with his little shell game that he's playing and suddenly he's introduced betting yeah. and gambling to, to the world <laughs> minor you remind me of the Wallerians, you know <laughs> <laughs> He'll probably wipe no. president. <laughs> Three, two, one, go. One. <laughs> <laughs> I'm speechless. Um, and a rare event. Uh, so I would like to talk about Dudley Simpson's music, very uh -huh. briefly, which is something we haven't covered yet. And I know that the gentleman sitting next to me, this is one of his top ten. Favorite Dudley scores? Yeah. Oh, okay. I love this score. I think this is where Dudley Simpson works out really how to do Doctor Who, because he's got he's going from purely radiophonic synthesized scores to mixing the radiophonics with some proper instruments, and suddenly it clicks in, and it's Dudley Simpson. He's here, and he is having a whale of a time scoring this. So he's got some big scenes to score where he can do a big chase scene around the ship where there's oh, not a lot of dialogue great. and so he can just follow that <clears throat> he's got the sort of uh dance bits for Scherner that's just just brilliant it's so hummable and love i love it to absolute pieces so when when he died i i write for a, a website called we are cults oh, and yeah. um they asked me to do a Dudley Simpson retrospective and sort of nominate 10 thing, pieces of music that he wrote that would stand as his sort of standout moments. And this was one of the first ones I thought of because... Where did this fall? I can't remember where. It was mid-table, I think. Uh, it wasn't in any kind of order oh, of preference. Okay. It was just 10, fi 10 things to show what Dudley Simpson could do. I mean, I think we can all agree, right? Sit your death is his greatest. Yes, score. absolutely. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, that's always his go-to Doctor Who one. But this is sort of <clears throat> nuts and bolts, Dudley, where <clears throat> he's now composer of the week. Generally, I mean, he scores the whole of season ten. Yeah, which I think is no, it's not his first season that he does the whole of because that's season eight. And that was all electronic, yeah. wasn't it? And a bit weird. And it's a bit, yeah, a bit odd. But this is where he really comes into his own as house composer, and he is the sound of Doctor Who from this point. I think Barry Lett says he trusted Dudley Simpson. He would have had Dudley Simpson to do every single story, and it was down to the director's personal taste if they wanted to bring in somebody else. Yeah, so <clears throat> Michael E. Bryant always went for someone else, generally. So he 
gets Dudley for his for um, Colony in Space and Robots of Death. And I think Robots of Death is the best scored Michael E. Bryant story. Yeah, it's beautiful. Again, that's a great Dudley Simpson score. Um, but in the meantime, he's gone for Malcolm Clark and, oh no, he gets Dudley for the Green Death, doesn't he? Then he has two lots of Carrie Blyton. Mm -hmm. So it's, yeah. Jesus. But yeah, Dudley just gets Doctor Who from this, well, he got Doctor Who from the start, really. But here, he's gone up a notch and it just works really well. Yeah. Oh. Hey, Jack, what do you think of uh, John Pertwee's jacket in this? Is oh, pretty good. You would wear. Oh. <laughs> I know you have a thing for crushed velvet, you know. I, well, I have one jacket, all right. <laughs> um, it's very cool, uh, you know, isn't it? It is. I mean, that is why I chose it. But um, uh, I like how you just like tell me about the the incidental music, Jack. What do you think about Pertwee's jacket? <laughs> um uh yeah no great jacket uh he looks great it's a good costume i love the kind of minty green opposite the bottle green i guess is um, it the best color jacket that he wears though uh no i have a real i really love the the velvet jacket he wears um that you know that red one the one from the three doctors he wears it a bunch of other times as well that one's my personal favorite for that one. <laughs> I like the one he wears in Monster Peladon, which is a bit darker than this green. Oh, this is my um, favourite Pertwee. Bloody hell. This is yeah, the favourite it is, from it any really reason, is, yeah. Uh, it's yeah. Adson coming in and just messing with the format a bit and giving Pertwee something new. Um, yeah. I like all the stories that he wears this in. <laughs> yeah. I, I, lo I love Glam Pertwee. Um, I, 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 I didn't have much to add on to the incidental music i think you made that point very brilliantly i suppose the only thing the only thing that really struck me about um because you know I, I i the music did for me what any good score should do is that you know it enhanced my experience it didn't draw too much attention except when it wanted to and I, um uh and what i really liked about the score was that uh, I, I and again, it's 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 probably because I it, they did do those little stings and those little comedy bits where you could kind of tell it was you know it was doing Doctor Who adventure music, but it was also doing other tones as well, uh, which I really enjoyed and really appreciated. I I, I enjoyed the elasticity of the score. Oh, that's very mm, good. Nice <laughs> word. And do you know what? I think comedy <laughs> doesn't work very often. There's a bit in the Time Monster which we talked about last week. Where the master's like, oh, it's spoiled again, isn't it? Oh, or even, or even that we done it, we done it, we done it, we done it, we done it. <laughs> Whereas and, that, um, that bit was sure enough. That's yeah, that beautiful bit. Music. Yeah, because I never think the sort of um, bullfighting music in Stones of Blood quite works oh, either. I don't know. I don't know. If it's a bit. I don't know if it's a bit on the nose. Sorry. This happens to us all the time, doesn't yeah. it? <laughs> <laughs> but no, it, uh, it, you're right. It's, and he uses the Radiophonic Workshop for the science fiction moments. Yes. And he uses just instruments for the period moments. For the, yeah, and I wonder if that was oh. a, um, a decision on his part to bring the instruments in because you can't do a historical with incident with synthesized music very well. So oh. I don't think it sells Atlantis very well no. in the Time Monster with purely synthesised music. 
I think um, I think a lot of people write off Dudley Simpson's music as like same yeah. But I think there's a lot more thought in there actually than people get. Yeah, even for. yeah, especially even in his late ones, which people are always mm. criticizing. His best scores, I think, are the best scores yeah. of of Doctor Who. You know, mm. best Murray Gold and Second Akinola. Yeah, right. yeah, yeah. Uh, with their orchestras um and he's just a man in a room with what like six instruments Ooh, yeah but like murray gold he got to be on screen in talents of wing cheyenne he did oh we'll have to talk about that anymore oh, i don't know is he was he was he in the music hall yeah ah oh was that oh with the yeah the, is that the first shot yes it yes is, it is yeah. yeah there you go oh good on you dudley um, so I'm going to ask the pair of you now to uh, perform an impossible task, if you would. Uh, I you about to say perform the score. <laughs> dun, 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 sorry. Um, and that is, uh, would you kind, beautiful, charismatic, intelligent gentleman, even though Jack's looking a bit scruffy today, um, <laughs> care to summarize your thoughts on this eclectic quirky doctor who story let's start with our guest well it's more and more as i get older and older i just appreciate everything about this story just i think it's a phenomenally good doctor who story without having any of the trappings of, that you would think of as a classic Doctor Who story. So there's no returning monsters. There's no real references to the past other than a Cyberman and an Ogron turning up. It's nothing that would, this is nuts and bolts Doctor Who, but that's what's brilliant about it because it's Robert Holmes let loose. I think really for the first time, he's got the hang of Doctor Who and he's playing with the concepts and he produces something that is absolutely, you couldn't do in any other show and i think that's what's brilliant about this if you want to show someone what doctor who can do and can be without it being big and epic and overblown this is probably one of those stories that just stands alone but sums up doctor who in all all the many ways and i think that's why it is now my favorite pertwee story fucking boss mm. how are we supposed to talk that <laughs> jack um <laughs> <laughs> uh I'm very poetically put uh and i'm not a poet um how do i summarize it um i think i think for me carnival of monsters is one of those stories which i think a lot more than others because with the design of um i, I think watching it i think watching it now i think even watching it you know maybe in the 80s, you're aware of the design failures or well, not, not failures, but, you know, shortcomings, I should say. Um, but it is one of those stories that more than any other encapsulates. Um, uh, it's, it, it's like my favorite story. It's like the Pirate Planet, where the ideas are so good um, that, um, uh, you know, the it doesn't matter that the production doesn't quite live up to the, the ideas, the, the story, the quality of the storytelling. The, the quality of the imagination, uh, the quality of the characters is just so good that it, 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 it's one, it's, it's, you know, it's, it encapsulates that whole shoestring, you know, imagination on a shoestring budget charm of Doctor Who. Um, and it, it, it bounce, it bounces across a lot of the different tones that I think, again, a lot more than I think other Doctor Who stories, it, 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 
it shows the breadth of tones that Doctor Who does. Um, I'm always like, and I think, you know, it's funny. It's it's got uh, you know thrills. It's got there's an arch quality to it for those who enjoy analyzing Doctor Who like we do. So if you you're picking about at the structure and the plotting and what it's saying and what's it saying about the show, it it appeals on all those levels. You know, it appeal. Uh, it's it's very enjoyable in that regard. And it's one of those stories like like City of Death where you can draw a very clear line between it and the new series um uh i it does strike me as one of those episodes that the new series is would is not not trying to emulate but it's a reference point for it in terms of all the different things it's trying to do and it's one of those stories where and this occurred to me earlier when sai was talking because where it kind of does everything because you can have you can have stories with 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 great imagination and they keep you at a distance because, you know, the characters don't work or the production is a letdown. Or, and vice versa, you can have very trad and boring stories where that, uh, that are saved by the quality of the characters and the quality of the chemistry and the relationships. Uh, the one I think about is Frontier in Space, where there is a lot of padding in that, which is just the Joe and the Doctor sitting in cells, just being transported between various places. And it is padding, but I enjoy those scenes so much because uh, the Doctor and Joe are so delightful in that. And in this story, you get kind of get both of those things where, you know, the characters are wonderful, the ideas are wonderful, and even, th and even though the, the production hasn't aged um, uh, particularly well, it, it's so... The strength of the ideas are so much that you don't, you don't care about that. It's the, it's one of those stories where I'm just like, this is so far, this is ahead of its time. It's so clever and so funny and so ahead of its time. And I love it. Oh, so now I'm supposed <laughs> to talk that. I'm going to be, do the rarest of things and try and be a bit succinct. Um, I think Carnival of Monsters does three things brilliantly. And uh -huh. I think as time wears on, all of Classic Who looks a little ropey. It's filmed yeah. in old fashioned ways. It has cheap effects like i don't think you're ever going to go to a, a classic doctor who story specifically for astonishing production values they can be astonishing and ambitious and incredible but I, I don't think like the production is the highlight of this even though it is good i think the three ways into classic who now are concept and this scores brilliantly with its concept character because that don't age really. A good character is a good character, um, and it's got a memorable, colourful, awesome cast of characters, including the Doctor and Joe. And more specifically, and this is the thing I think that the separates Doctor Who from so much other science fiction out there is the humour. And I think the humour is a really great way into Doctor Who. And I think if you're laughing with a show and you can laugh at Doctor Who don't get me wrong <laughs> but if you're laughing with a show then you kind of go with it and this is so funny it's so witty it's so silly and I think the more the three of us are getting older uh, kind of any kind of pretense for Doctor Who of being like serious drama 
falls away and what we want is something that's really funny and really enjoyable to watch and this is one of the most enjoyable Doctor Who stories to watch I, I think. think that's what sets this above the rest of the Pertwee era for me yes. because up to this point the Pertwee era has really shied away it's very serious it's very straight it's alien invasions the stakes are are high and Pertwee is a funny man he's he's yeah. he's worked his chops through comedy and he's reacting he's against the that most serious doctor yeah isn't he? and yet he's really serious and so his stories become serious because he's a serious doctor but here the doctor is just what am i trying to say he's he's just having fun yeah and we don't see his doctor having fun before this point i don't think um there are, are small scenes where he he looks like that but his doctor changes from this point onwards and yeah. he becomes he just is so lovable from this moment he's on. super chilled out in those cells in frontier in space yeah. in Planet where, of the Daleks. railing against all of those things sort of after that when he's trying to devise his plan to get out he pulls out a hanky and goes oh a fancy hanky you know and the time warrior he's that oh, he's, he's loving every minute yeah. he's just having a great time and from this point onwards he's set free he can go back into time and space and he finds his joy in life i think it's almost like we didn't get here sooner isn't it yeah i think so yeah yeah it's like well, it's kind of like season 10 capaldi in that respect yes i'm, I'm going to start and end this episode with exactly the same thing and ask for everyone to do one quote from carnival of monsters starting with jack Oh, not again. Um, uh, we are here simply... Uh, well, how does it go? We are here simply to amuse. Uh, just amuse. Uh, nothing political. But somebody said that already. I feel like that's cheating. Well, um, maybe, maybe a little, but... Yeah. Um, I, I don't know. I also really like when they're walking around the inside of um, the miniscope and Pertwee says it's like walking around inside... It's like walking, walking around inside a wristwatch. Oh, yeah, um, yeah, that's a terrific line. Yeah. Uh, okay, uh, one of my <laughs> favourite moments that sort of never gets mo never gets noticed because all the characters are talking over it. Where um, the major daily says, "Oh, we should discuss this over a nice over a drink." And Pertwee turns around and says, "Yes, I'll have a large scotch." <laughs> Oh, yeah. <laughs> it's just, all the other characters no one notices it and he doesn't get his large scotch but he's just so comfortable there yeah, that straight so away i want to quote something from the interminans hang on i'm going to try and do it in a quick succession your thoughts are as clear as your ambitions how dare you please and it's, <laughs> oh, like that. it's so brilliant um jack uh i don't you didn't know this but whilst you were summarizing um carnival of monsters i did in fact hand sigh a piece of paper with all of our oh because we always ask the guests to choose the next episode don't we i've forgotten about this yeah we do <laughs> i'm sorry i'm assuming you've done this yes i am going to take you somewhere that was my very close run other choice to do here oh. i'm going to take you to my favorite season of doctor who oh i know that. Oh. And I don't to the intersection between N space and E space oh. to the gateway for Warriors Gate. 
Oh, I love that story. The gateway, the secret of the gateway. Oh my God, amazing. There are three physical gateways and the three are one. We'll be in a lot of trouble when the pickles run out. <laughs> <laughs> a story that is stylishly directed. Oh, is it? And full of brilliant imagery and could oh. be a good way into a version of Doctor Who for someone new. Oh. Mm. I'm excited, Jack. Are you? Oh, I am. Any excuse to rewatch Warriors Gate? No, I, had, I love that one. Loved it. Loved it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Let's do it. And we're gonna oh. we're gonna do it this time. Well, we will. Yeah, we're gonna do it. And as is our want to get as many people as possible to quote our ridiculous slogan at the end of the episode. Mm. Oh, um, wait. Am I saying Simon or or Nymon? What's what's the go here? Let's say the Simon be pleased. <laughs> okay. <laughs> All right. A <laughs> <laughs> uh, three, a two, a one. The Simon, Simon be pleased. Ah. Oh. Oh. <laughs> so it's oh. been a pleasure. Oh, it's been an absolute joy. Thank you so much. No, thank you. It's been delightful.